0: Our sermon today will be taken from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 18. This is the word of God. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols?
1: Friends, this is our third sermon in the series of marriage and singleness, and originally we had four sermons planned for the series, but we decided to add one more sermon and make it five because there are just two other passages in the Bible that we couldn't choose from. They're both about marriage and singleness, and they're both really good, and we didn't want to choose either or. So we're deciding to preach on both, but therefore it's going to add one more sermon to the series, um, and that way we're going to have five sermons. Uh, But also, it works out because our first sermon back in the book of Romans, uh, we're going to neatly start that back up in the first Sunday of January 2021, okay? So after this one, we're going to have two more sermons on marriage and singleness. Now, the particular passage that I chose today is something uh, that I've had to personally deal with many times as a pastor, and that is the issue of marriage between a Christian and a non-Christian, what does the Bible have to say about that? Is it clearly prohibited? Many wanna know, if so, why? And of course, I realize that this is an issue that is very close to a lot of people's hearts. And a lot of you are actually dealing with this issue, not just in some kind of theoretical level, but in a personal and emotional level. You know, you may be Christian, but you're in a romantic relationship with somebody who's not a Christian. Or you may be Christian and you have romantic feelings for somebody who's, who's not a Christian. And, and you want to know what the Bible says about it. And before we enter into the passage, I do want to point out, it's as if Paul here also realizes how emotional this topic can be. And I think because of that, three verses before he starts saying what he said in verses 14 to 18, he told the Christians in, in Corinth that he's writing to that he loves them and that he has no ulterior motive for saying what he's about to say. It's not like he gets a pay raise, you know, if someone agrees with him. It's actually quite the opposite. By saying what he said in our passage today, he puts himself at the risk of being unpopular. But he did it anyways. You know why? Because he loved these Christians in Corinth more than he loved his own reputation. And you probably gathered from what we read earlier, yes, Paul does in this passage conclude that a Christian should not marry a non-Christian. And if if that sounds just totally senseless to you, or if that sounds unnecessarily rigid and traditionalistic in your ears, just know that you're not the only one that feels that way. There's this movie that came out, an Indonesian movie that came out in 2018. Tati and I went to watch it. Uh, I don't know if you saw it, but it was called Canan Barcelona. Okay. And the meta-narrative of this movie is that there's two people who really love one another, but they can't be with one another because they come from two different religious backgrounds. They're two different religions. And the movie wasn't explicitly you know, trying to say anything, but it does depict our modern frustrations, perhaps, that we have about how some traditionalistic values can often prohibit true love unnecessarily when it shouldn't. And, and I want you to hear that I completely agree with that, I really do. I think certain traditions has a way of limiting love unnecessarily. For example, I've recently learned that in some cultures in Indonesia, you don't just have to come from the right race, but you also have to come from the right tribe and the right ethnicity of that race for your parents to then agree to marry you with one another. And and the Bible actually breaks through some of those unbiblical, traditionalistic barriers that that we've made up. That's unbiblical. The Bible makes no distinction between race or skin color or tribes or financial standing or, or whatever it is that divides us today. And I hope that as we go through the passage, we'll be able to see the difference between these traditionalistic, oppressive kind of thinking with what the Bible is actually saying. And hopefully we can see that one is driven out of a heart of segregation and the other is driven by love. How so? Well, let's, let's get to the passage. There's three things I want to point out from our passage today. First point, what kind of a relationship is actually restricted? Second point, why it's so strict? And third point, who's the one restricting it? Okay? What kind of relationship is actually restricted? Why it's so strict? And who's the one restricting it? First point, what kind of relationship is actually restricted? Okay. Okay. Let's begin in verses 14 to 16. Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, what accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with a non-believer, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And, you know, you read this, and I totally get how at first some people may think that Paul is saying, Christians can't have any kind of relationship with non-Christians, right? That's kind of what it sounds like he, he's saying, but that can't be what Paul is saying here. Why? Because that goes go against so many other passages in the Bible that calls Christians to love and, and care for non-Christians. And on top of that, it'd go against the example of Jesus' own life, who often associates himself with tax collectors and with prostitutes. So, so Paul here isn't saying that Christians can't have any kind of relationship with non-Christians. What Paul is saying is that there is a specific kind of relationship that a Christian shouldn't have with non-Christians. What kind? Well, let's get to the details. Let's read the passage again. When we read it, you'll see that there are five descriptive words that describe the kind of relationship that a Christian should not have with a non-Christian, or shouldn't have with a non-Christian. Okay? Let's take a look at them. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what? partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? You hear that? Partnership, fellowship, accord, portion, agreement. Let's talk about each of those. To partner with someone means to be intimately bound up with that person, so much so to where the ultimate goal for your life and their life, and, and your view of what the purpose of life is kind of gets enmeshed with one another. To have fellowship with someone is to be so intertwined with that person in a way that you kind of contribute to each other's core life direction, okay? A chord in verse 15, in, in Greek there, is Uh In the English, it's where we get the word symphony. And the idea here is two different singers harmonizing with each other, living and dancing kind of with the same tune. And to have portion with and to be in agreement with kind of means the same thing. It kind of means that there are two people so close with one another that they end up morphing and intermixing each other's kind of worldviews and the way they look at life. So what's being portrayed here isn't the prohibition of just any kind of relationship with non-Christians, but a specific kind of relationship that is so intimately bound and intertwined with one another, causing you to be in this kind of deep harmony with that person, so much so that you'll necessarily end up agreeing and morphing in each other's worldviews and ultimate purpose of life and sense of identity and so forth. You see, that's a specific kind of relationship that Christians are being warned to not have with non-Christians. For efficiency's sake, let's call that kind of relationship a foundationally transformative relationship, okay? A foundationally transformative relationship. That's what Christians are called here by Paul to not have with non-Christians, okay? Let's get really practical now, all right? Does that therefore mean that I can't work in the same office with a non-Christian? Of course it doesn't mean that. Why not? Because professional relationships don't require you to be mutually transformative in a foundational way with one another. You do your job, and they do theirs. Because it's a professional relationship. Okay, but what if you become friends, you know, with someone at your office? All right, let's talk about that. Friendship. Can Christians be friends with non-Christians? Of course they can. Why? Because being friends with someone doesn't require you to be mutually transformative in a foundational way. You can be very, very, very committed and close to someone, but yet still appreciate each other's differences and not kind of morph each other's worldviews and and life purposes, you know, in a a, a core way. It's it's possible. You just have to be wise about how you navigate through it. Even in in family relationships, you can still love your sibling who's a non-Christian. You can still care and honor your parents who are non-Christians without having your Christian worldview kind of morph and transform into, into something else. Now, of course, some parent-child relationships may be more difficult to navigate through than others, but the point is, it's, it's doable. But in a marriage, you see, if you want an intimate, deeply intertwined and connected kind of harmonious marriage with your spouse, which is what you should want, I just don't know how to do that well without each person affecting the other person's worldview in a foundational kind of way. You want someone who really gets you, don't you? You want someone who you can connect with at a a foundational level, don't you? And and you should. That's good to want that. But the question is, who are you? Like, foundationally, at your core, who are you, Christian? Out of everything else in your life, what defines you most? You're not your music taste. I love folk music and Tati loves Blink-182. She likes other bands and genres as well, but the point is, you know, it's different. You're not your movie preferences. You're not your lifestyle preferences. You're not your skin color, your ethnicity, or race. That's not who you are. At the most essential, core, foundational level, Christian, the Bible says who you are is a son and daughter of God who is traveling through this world that is not your home. That's who you are. Now, some may respond, you know, but can't we still connect with our non-Christian romantic other in other areas of life? I mean, of course you can. Sure. Just not in the one area that matters most in your life. Just not in the area of what makes you, you. At the most foundational level, unless, of course, you think there's something more foundational about who you are, compared to your identity in Christ, which is a whole other issue that we need to talk about. And some here may still respond, you know, but my non-Christian boyfriend or girlfriend or fiancé—they have nothing against the gospel, you know—they don't disagree with it, so we still may be able to relate, you know, uh, about who I am in Christianity in, in some kind of way, and and that's great. You know, you may still be able to connect with them about Christianity in in some level, but someone who merely has nothing against the gospel, they won't truly get you. They can't truly harmonize and match your melody as someone who knows firsthand the joys and the sorrows of what it means to be a sinner saved by grace. Someone who merely doesn't disagree with the gospel can't truly fellowship with you in a foundational level You know, as a sojourner who's traveling this world and waiting for a better country in which has been purchased for them by the blood of Christ on his cross, they won't be able to relate with you in in that way. And look, you may not be cutting corners financially with this person. You may not be cutting corners physically with this person. You may not be cutting corners hobby-wise with this person. But you are cutting corners in the one thing that matters most in your life. And there are three possible outcomes. One, you got to give in. I mean, maybe not not fully, but to some extent, you're going to have to give in and let their worldview shape the culture of your family. You know, a culture that won't be as Christ-centered and gospel-focused and cross-driven as you'd like it to be. Of course it won't because the other person who's leading the family doesn't really believe in all that stuff. You know, they may say, I agree Christ died for people's sins, but they're not yet saying Christ died for my sins, are they? So how can they possibly match your melody? You're going to have to give in somehow, somewhere. And of course, you got to give in in marriage. Yes, you know, but in the areas of like, what do you want to eat for dinner tonight? (laughs) Or what movie you want to watch later? You know, of course, you got to give in in those areas. But we're talking about the area of, of the worship of God here. You know, your very purpose in life, in that, Christian is never called to give in. Or two, your spouse may feel suffocated to some extent. We might think, you know, well, they're willing to endure my Christian lifestyle, You know they're willing to do all the Christian stuff, even when they don't truly personally believe in the cross or the gospel themselves. But but you got to think about that. Do you really want to put your future spouse through that? Remember what it felt like when you were doing the motions of Christianity without understanding grace, without understanding the gospel? You remember how suffocating that was? Jesus calls it legalism and produces only Pharisees. And to an extent... That's what your future non-Christian spouse will experience when they do the motions without believing that they themselves are sinners who've been saved by grace. So, either you'll give in, or they'll feel suffocated, or three, you guys just kinda both do your own things to the fullest, and then come back and connect in peripheral matters, but be disconnected in the foundationally core part of your identity that deeply makes you, you. You can do that, but is that really the kind of marriage you want? And look, I I completely get why people often think that their relationship is the exception. I I, I get that I do because honestly, at least in the cases that I've handled, the non Christians that that these Christians are are dating or engaged to, are often really 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 great people. Like they're 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 so kind, they're so generous, they're so loving, they're so patient. And if I can be honest, you know many of them on a behavioral level i see as more husband or wife material than many christians i know if i can be honest i mean a lot of them would be willing to go through four to six counseling sessions with their fiance's pastor you know if that's not patience and love and endurance i don't know what is they're great people with good behavior good morals and on top of that as we talked about earlier most of them you know they're religious or at least they're spiritually neutral. They may not have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, but they're not against it. They're actually pretty supportive of Christianity. You know, and we see these qualities about them, and we just don't get it. We don't get why Paul here seems so strict, so black and white about this, which leads us to our second point. What, why is it so strict? Look, look at how black and white Paul describes here that is the difference between Christians and non-Christians. He says, what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness light with darkness, Christ with Belial, the temple of God with idols, and you look at that list and you think, gosh, you know, <laughs> I just don't think my non-Christian boyfriend, girlfriend, or fiance kind of fall under any of those categories. I mean, Belial, you know, darkness. I mean, sure, they're not Christians, but to describe them as, as, as darkness, that's, that's a little unfair. And you're right, you know, to be lawless or or darkness, those may not be right terms to describe them on a behavioral level, but you got to remember, Paul here isn't making a claim of their external behavior or of their attitude. Paul's making a claim about their spiritual state. Let's do it this way. Think about your own testimony. Think about why it is you love the gospel so much. It's because... As scripture says, that through the cross, you were brought, what? From death to life, right? From darkness to light, from being an enemy of God to, to being a child of God. That's why you love the gospel. That's why the gospel is so meaningful to you, you know, and, and, and so bizarre. Not because Christ saves spiritually neutral people, but because Christ saves dead people. Not because Christ makes better, you know, spiritually sick people, but because Christ Brings people from dead to life, from dark to light. That's what dismantled your heart for Christ, was it not? Now let me ask you, think about your own testimony. What would you say? What brought you out of death to life? What brought you out of darkness into light? What saved you from being a recipient of God's wrath to becoming God's child? Was it your behavior? Did your moral religiosity in any way make you more neutral spiritually? What would the gospel say about that? Did your religiosity in any way make you less dead spiritually? What would the gospel say about that? It didn't. It didn't. That would be legalism. Thinking that your behavior or morality or religiosity somehow makes you less dead or less in the dark and more neutral compared to these other people that are sinners, you know? It was receiving the grace of Christ on the cross alone. That's what woke you up from the dead. So then why is it that when it comes to your non-Christian boyfriend, girlfriend, or fiance, for some reason, you think that their good moralistic behavior makes them less in the dark? Why is it that when it comes to your your non-Christian boyfriend, girlfriend, or fiance, somehow their good works makes them more spiritually neutral? Why is it that you would sing your heart out as you did earlier? I am born again by grace and grace alone. But when it comes to your non-Christian boyfriend, girlfriend, and fiance, somehow their good religious morals can contribute to making them not as dead. It's as if they're not born again by grace and grace alone, but by their moral works adding into it. Do you see the inconsistency there? That's not the gospel, that's not what you believe. The only hope anyone has in being taken out of darkness into the light is not by good behavior. It's not by their religiosity. It's not whether or not they believe that Christ has died uh, and 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 died generally just for sins, but it's whether or not they've accepted Christ has died for their sins and washed them from their from their guilt and 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 brought them from darkness to light. Grace and grace alone, not behavior, not religion, this isn't new information to you. I'm not telling you anything that you didn't know before as a Christian. You know this. You already believe this. You believe this when you share your faith and testimony with non-Christians, do you not? You would tell them, our good works amount to nothing. You know, I used to go to church. I was a good person, you know, but I was still dead in my sin because my morality didn't add anything to my salvation until I received Christ as Lord and Savior. That's when I was brought from death to life. That's when I was brought from darkness to light. That's what you would say, is it not? So then why is it that when it comes to your non-Christian boyfriend, girlfriend, or fiance, all of a sudden you don't believe it anymore? And for some reason, their religiosity or their morality somehow makes them more spiritually neutral, or not as dead, or not as in the dark as others. When you would never say that about you or about anyone else. When you enter into a foundationally transforming relationship with someone who has not received Christ as Lord and Savior, no matter how religious or moral or kind or patient they may be, you're not entering into a foundationally transforming relationship with a neutral person. Though externally, it might seem that way. You're entering into a foundationally transforming relationship with someone who's still in the dark. And so, Paul asks, what fellowship, has light with darkness. When you do that, Paul continues to speak in verse 16, it's as if you're putting an idol inside of God's temple. That's what Paul says. Back then in the Old Testament, idol worship was terrible. But to take a a, a statue of a false god and put it inside of God's temple and worship that instead of Yahweh, that's the ultimate insult. And Paul is saying here, don't you realize, Christian, that in Christ, you're the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you. And and, and when you, the temple of God, enter into a foundationally transformative relationship with someone who's still in the dark, it's like you're putting an idol inside of God's temple. Now, you may be feeling a lot of things right now for yourself, or maybe for for a loved one that you know who may be offended or hurt, but by Paul's words here. And and it's, it's fair to feel that way. It's fair to feel that way. It makes sense why some may feel that way. And, and Paul knows that too. That's why it's so important that Paul reminds us here of, of who it is that's really saying all of this. Let, let's go to our last point. Who is the one forbidding it, okay? Now, if, we, if you take a look in your Bibles uh, at the end of verse 16 to verse 18 of our passage, you'll see that in your Bibles, it's indented a little bit, like it's it's a section of its own. And when that happens in the New Testament, that usually means that the writer at that moment is quoting an Old Testament passage. Okay, And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's quoting, to end this, this part of his letter, he's quoting several Old Testament passages in verses 16 to 18. Now, why is that important to do? Because Paul knows that what he's saying is, is really, really hard to hear. And unless we see it's God himself who's saying it, we'll never listen. That's why he's quoting Old Testament scripture. I'm not making this up, Paul says here. When you receive Christ as Lord and Savior, you become God's temple. You know, Paul says that in verse 16, he's quoting Leviticus chapter 26 verses 11 to 12 there if you want to check it out for yourself. God's been saying this since back when. I'm not making this up all of a sudden. And therefore, because of that, don't enter into foundationally transformative relationships with those who haven't received Christ as Lord and Savior. And Paul says that in verse 17, quoting Isaiah 52 verses 11 to 12, you know. God's been saying this ever since. Love them, get to know them, be friends with them. Heck, Die for them as Christ died for you if the situation calls for it. Paul says that all throughout Scripture. But when it comes to enmeshing or or, or morphing core worldviews, treat that seriously. And Paul here quotes strong Old Testament language for that particular issue. When it comes to that, he says, get out of their midst and be separate from them. But here's what I really, really want to pay attention to as, as we close. Look at the last verse. Look at verse 18. Here in verse 18, Paul quotes Isaiah 43, verse 6, where where God said in the Old Testament, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, this is is so important for Paul to say right now, perhaps more so than, than we realize. Why? Because Paul is reminding us here of who God is. Who is he? Our Father. And that is so important to remember right now. Because look for some of you obeying this command may be very very costly very costly and if you think that god is just some kind of tyrant up there you know who likes to enforce rules for no good reason at your expense because he's in some kind of power trip then of course you'll never obey this command that that won't work remember the last time someone tried to kill your love with threats Didn't work very well, did it? I mean, externally it might have changed things, but internally it didn't work at all. It can't. Threats can't quench love. That's why you have to realize that the one giving you this command, he's not a tyrant up in heaven who's on a power trip. He's your father. Your father who's paid for the price of your adoption by crushing his one and only son. This is coming from him. And once you believe that, then, then you just might be persuaded to listen. This isn't modernity bending down to traditionalism, okay? This isn't freedom shackled by rigidity. This is an all-wise, loving father instructing his sons and daughters, who in Isaiah 43 he calls precious, honored, and beloved in his eyes. This isn't from me. This isn't from Paul. These are loving instructions from your Father in heaven who sent his only begotten Son to die in your place. Listen, would you? Let me just end by clarifying one thing, Um, one thing that I can foresee a possible unintended misconception from the sermon. Let me just clarify. This does not apply to Christians who are already married to non-Christians. Okay, let me be extra clear there. Okay, Paul is not commanding Christians to divorce their non-Christian spouse, okay? That is not what he's saying. Because sometimes that happens. You know, For example, two non-Christians get married and then one, one person accepts Christ after they got married but the other hasn't, you know? How do you navigate? through that kind of marriage. And if you want to hear more about that, tune in next Sunday. I'm going to preach on First Peter, where the Bible does talk about that. You know, how does a man or a woman love and treat their non-Christian spouse if they're already married to them? Okay? Um, Come back next week for that. And I want to be empathetic, also, and and kind to realize that some people may be in that situation and and all is not lost. Okay? Um, But as we close our passage today, just... Just hear me when, when I say I truly do realize how this passage and the sermon was very provocative. And some of you may be paying a huge, huge cost to follow Christ in this area of your life. And, and if some of you aren't sacrificing as much you know, in your obedience to this command compared to some others, don't gloat, don't be unkind, don't be insensitive, don't judge or mock. Instead, be a brother and sister in Christ to them. Sit with them. Be fellow sojourners with them. Understand the difficulties behind their decision. And ultimately, point them back to the gospel. Point them back to their all-wise Father in heaven. And point them back to His loving heart for them. All right? It's from Him. Would you listen? And again, if any of you have have further questions about this sermon or about the past two sermons on this topic of marriage and singleness, then I just want to remind you again, I'll be available uh, to to chat with you at our Ask the Preacher webinar today at 3 p.m. You can find the link again um, on this YouTube video in the description below. And I'd love to hear what it is you have to say to sit with you um, and try my best to answer any questions that you might have. Okay, let's pray. Father, we come to you realizing that you are not a God who fits any of our molds and following you sometimes can be costly. But help us Christians who say they believe in the gospel, help us live consistently with what we just said. We believe that you sent your son to die on a cross for our sins. How can then any of your instructions uh, be, be a desire to harm us? How can any of your instructions be out of a mean-spirited heart? But of course, it's all done for our good and for our flourishing. And I pray, Father, that as we take in this very hard instruction today, you would miraculously and supernaturally give your children the kind of strength that only the Holy Spirit can provide so that we can follow you in a way that we couldn't ourselves if only left to our own wills apart from your grace. Help us, Father, keep your church uh, loving and, and contextualized and, and in some way uh, relevant and caring and connected with the culture, but also help your church disconnect itself from the culture when, when it calls to compromise in its worship of you and in its worldview and in its following of of your commands In jesus name we pray
0: amen